Well, before the break, uh, we got a really brief introduction into the concept of the doctrine of covenant. And we're going to continue with that introduction today, kind of working a little bit, uh, just working this a little bit into our, into our thinking. Um, and I've called this, this section of teaching how God relates to humanity. Uh, next time, I hope to talk about Adam's probation, the concept of federalism, Adam's representative headship, and all of that is really essential for understanding Christ's uh, headship and our great salvation. So, uh, it's uh, James was asking me this morning, are we still in the section on anthropology? And it's kind of like, yeah, kind of in there. Uh, this is really having to do with God's decree and God's dealings with man, but we are still thinking about anthropology. And this section seems to fit in well between anthropology and then homardiology. I wanted to lay this foundation before we talk about the doctrine of sin. Um, so that's, that's what we're doing. So for today, we're returning to the doctrine of covenant and we'll do a little bit of review. It's been a couple months since we last met. So we'll do a bit of review, introduce the two works-based covenants. Uh, that's kind of what I call them. Uh, Pre-temporal covenant between the Father and the Son called the covenant of redemption. And then the covenant of works, which is at the beginning of creation between God and Adam. We talked about that a little bit last time from Genesis 2. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save uh, the discussion of what's called the covenant of grace uh, in the interest of both pedagogy and, and, or pedagogy and necessity. Uh, in the interest of pedagogy, which is kind of a, a method of teaching, I want to wait until we cover the fall and homardiology, the doctrine of sin, uh, to then talk about the covenant of grace and our need for it. And I think that after we talk about homardiology, the doctrine of sin, we're going to see our need for grace. It's going to be very, very clear that there is no, no one righteous, not even one. And the only way that we can be rec reconciled to God is if he um, makes a covenant of grace with us. Uh, and in the interest of necessity, I, thinking about the covenant of grace, I need time to sort through what different theologians have written about the covenant of grace because they're not all consistent, they don't all agree, and I just haven't had the time to really ferret through all the material. So I'm, I, I need more time to do that. This will give me a, a time to do that. So for today, as I said, we're going to look more closely at the two Workspace covenants, covenant of redemption, covenant of works. Before we do that, let's get a bit of review, remind ourselves of what we mean by the word covenant and get a basic definition. So starting out, I want to ask you, who can define the word covenant? And all I'm looking for here, and I want you to show off your reading, I want you to give us a very basic definition of the word covenant. What is it? What's a synonym for a covenant? Testament. Okay, testament, that's good. Who else? Contract. Contract, okay, we'd say contract. Uh, contract is, seems to be more, uh, less, there, there's, it's less than a covenant, but not, you know, it's, it's certainly involved. What else? Contractual agreement, certainly you can see that, uh, those aspects in the covenant. Promise, did you say promise? That's a great word. Great word is promise, promise. Uh, who else? Yeah. Adjoining? Adjoining? Uh, joining together, you can see that, joining together two parties, definitely. Um, and another word for that is the word treaty. You can see the word treaty between a, uh, you know, a, like a, a lord and a vassal. Uh, 
you know, a king and then, you know, vassals underneath him, vassal kings underneath him. There are treaties and that's a covenant that they make. So great words. So agreement, treaty, promise, testament, definitely. Uh, so old and new testaments, old and new covenants, you could say. All right. So who can explain? And again, I'm just looking for basic stuff here. Basic elements of a covenant. What makes a covenant a covenant? Can you say again, um, what are the basic elements in a covenant? So what makes a covenant a covenant? A binding agreement or the person actually making the covenant there. Okay, binding agreement. That's good because uh, and that kind of goes back to what Chuck said about contracts. So, yeah, just two parties. Two parties, okay, so that's a basic element. Uh, something binding, that's a basic element. What else? Yeah, right. Trust. Trust? Um, well, the, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> We, so when it's God with us, we have every reason to trust him. Okay, there's nothing in him. But when two humans come together, isn't that the reason for a covenant that we don't really trust each other? <laughs> That's why we cut pieces of animals together, you know, in half, put them on either side, and the two parties walk through and say, so be it done to me or you if you don't keep the terms of this. So what does that mean? I don't trust you. <laughs> You're a fallen sinner like I am. You may break this. So... The issue of trust is what's at stake in a covenant. And, and that's why um, some people, when they look at, uh, well, I won't go into that uh, for the sake of time. But so with God making a covenant with us, he's, he's making a covenant with us because he is condescending to accommodate us in our tendency not to trust him. He's, he's binding himself by, by covenant or promise. Is it because there's any untrustworthiness in God? Absolutely not. It's because there is a fault in us that we tend not to trust our creator, which is just evidence of our sin. So I'm really glad you brought that up, even though it's not an element of a covenant. No, but it, is, but it kind of is. It's kind of really forced by this issue of covenant. What else? Okay, great. Thank you. That's the kind of last uh, element I'm looking for is consequences. There are promises for obedience to the covenant, adhering to the covenant, and there are penalties assigned or threats, we could even say, which is the, you know, cut the animals in half. So maybe it done to me or you if we don't keep the terms. So consequences for violating the covenant and promises, blessings for uh, for keeping the covenant. So those are excellent guys. I'm really glad to hear your memory from two months ago. Uh, it looks like the holiday break was easy on your memory. That's great. So definition of a covenant, um, maybe defining, describing it. Herman Bobbing says generally a covenant is an agreement between two persons who voluntarily, that's another element really, I should have said voluntarily, obligate and bind themselves to each other for the purpose of fending off an evil or obtaining a good. Continuing on, he says, and this is just, you heard this last time, but I think it's a, a rich statement. He says, such an agreement, whether it is made tacitly or defined in explicit detail, is the usual form in terms of which humans live and work together. So think about these issues that involve covenant agreement between even human beings. Love, friendship, marriage, as well as all social cooperation in business, industry, science, art, and so forth, is ultimately grounded in covenant. That is, in reciprocal fidelity and an assortment of generally recognized moral obligations. 
It should not surprise us, therefore, that also the highest and most richly textured life of human beings, namely religion, bears this character. In Scripture, covenant is the fixed form in which the relation of God to his people is depicted and presented. And even where the word does not occur, we nevertheless always see the two parties, as it were, in dialogue with each other, dealing with each other, with God calling people to conversion, reminding them of their obligations, and obligating himself to provide all that is good, end quote. So that's Herman Bobink describing covenant, and you can hear those elements that we talked about. Here's Wayne Grudem, who's kind of listing these elements of covenant. Uh, and he says, this is a uh, covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. That's a helpful summary right there. So an there's an agreement. There are two parties, God and man. They're in relationship and noted in the agreement, the nature of the relationship is free and voluntary. Uh, stipulations of the covenant. God is the one who stipulates the terms. We're talking about the biblical or theological covenants. God is the one who stipulates those terms. So they're divinely imposed. Man is not able to negotiate or change the terms. He just accepts the terms and, uh, or, he, or he doesn't accept them. He doesn't accept them based on his violation of the covenant, based on his disobedience. And the covenants are unchangeable. So covenants may be superseded or replaced, but they may not be changed or modified once they're established, once they're ratified. Okay, so those are the elements there. And I want to illustrate this by going to scripture. Uh, if you would turn to Genesis 15, Genesis 15, we'll look at the Abrahamic covenant and see if we can locate those three elements. So I'm going to start reading. You catch up. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household shall, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And this is an essential verse. We see it repeated in the New Testament. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Counted it to him, reckoned to him, imputed it to him as righteousness. There's, there's righteousness through faith, okay? Justification by faith is grounded in that concept there. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought them all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham, or Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness came upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. 
They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, or Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So they're out, Israel's in. That's, that's a, the biblical narrative account of God making this covenant with Abram. And I wanted to see, do you see the agreement there? Are there, you see two parties, uh, God and Abram, they're in relationship with one another. They're noted in the agreement. And the nature of the relationship between God and Abram is free and voluntary. And it's, Abram entered into this even in Genesis chapter 12, when God appeared to him there. And he voluntarily left his home and went to Haran and went to the land of Canaan and was, you know, left all his, of his, his roots and his family. He left his gods. He left his everything for, I mean, it's the same command, isn't it, today? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So he's leaving everything behind. That's always a, the command to come, to come to God in relationship. Do we see a stipulation there in that, that chapter? Yes. God has stipulated terms, and they're divinely imposed, and Abram is not able to negotiate or change the terms. Do we see an unchangeableness there? Yes. And we, as we said, the covenant can't be superseded or replaced. It hasn't been superseded or replaced. It may not be changed or modified once it's established or ratified. So just to illustrate that, go to, um, go on the other side of your Bible, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 11 to 18, Galatians 3. And I'll just, while you're turning there, I'll just point out that Peter said to his fellow Jews, and he uh, appealed to the reasoning from this covenant. He said, you are, this, this is Acts 3.25, he said, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's just a demonstrate. It's not been changed. It's not been abrogated. It's not been set aside. This is something that is still in force as Peter speaks to his people. But we go to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11, says there, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give, it a human, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Again, we're just trying to show the unchangeable nature of the covenant, and that's exactly what Paul is appealing to here uh, with even a human man-made covenant. Now, verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and he, he does not say, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So there's, again, that language of promise, covenant, treaty, agreement, and that's established between God and Abraham, and it's still in force, and it's fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Um, so he's reasoning from the example of the Abrahamic covenant there in Galatians 3. Go back uh, just a few books to Romans, Romans chapter 7. What was once mediated through the Mosaic covenant, which was then undermined and thwarted, the Mosaic covenant being undermined and thwarted by the sin nature in mankind, that's been fulfilled and will be fulfilled through the new covenant in Christ. And even though I'm concerned about time with the notes I have left, I'm still going to read a big section of this. So we're going to start in Romans 7.1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only so long as he lives. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she's freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work on our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? The law is sin? By no means. Yet if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Or you might say, sin lies ineffective or dormant. It's there. It's just not active. But as soon as that commandment of God comes, which is good and righteous, holy, all of a sudden, our sin nature rebels against what we hear from God. That's what he's saying here. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law of God. You put alive in air quotes there. Alive apart from the law of God. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anybody identify with some of that? Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So what's our enemy, men? 
Is it to chase the devil and fight little demons and all that kind of stuff? No. It's inside, isn't it? The enemy is within. It's the sin nature. That's, that's what we need to be warring against, fighting against. Let's clarify what the target is. So verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Only a Christian can say that, right? Only a Christian can say, I delight in God's law in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. With my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has done, or for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we have been brought in, and it is based on grace. And yet that grace allows us to go back to the law that God gave, which is holy, righteous, and good, and willingly delight in it and do it and engage in, in true uh, covenant life with God and receiving covenant life from God. So that section, keep that in mind because that is grounded in this concept of covenant, which we'll, you'll, I think you'll see as we continue to go on. So I'm going to move right now from some biblical illustrations to just talk about the two uh, works-based covenants here and talk about first the covenant of redemption. So as I said, two works-based covenants, covenant of redemption and covenant of works, covenant of redemption. Uh, the first, first one I want to just briefly review here is, is an eternal pre-temporal, by pre-temporal I'm meaning before time began. It's intra-Trinitarian, so it's between the persons of the Trinity and that's an inter-Trinitarian agreement between the Father and the Son. And it assigns the work of redemption to each person in order to fulfill the eternal decree of redemption. Okay? That's a mighty mouthful, but let's unpack it a little bit with Charles Hodge. Anybody have a question at this point? Good. <laughs> so so some will say some will say that and others will say no it's not. They're two separate things. So that's, again, that's part of my, my trying to ferret out and sort out. There's a lot of different views on the covenant of grace, and so I'm just trying to ferret that out. But right now, I'm treating them as two separate things. And the reason is because the covenant of redemption, there's, it, it is the basis, it is the ground of the covenant of grace, but I don't think it's the same part, in, it's the same as the covenant of grace. I, I wouldn't put an equal sign between them. I'd say covenant of redemption with an arrow sign pointing to covenant of grace, because covenant of redemption, as I said, is a works-based covenant. It's based on you do this and you get a reward. It's between the Father and the Son. So there's no grace needed between the Father and the Son. It's purely inter-Trinitarian. Okay? So hopefully it'll become clear. But as I said, or as you're saying, and as I'm seeing in the writing, there's, there's a good bit of divergence. So, got a question? Yes? 
We entered into a new covenant in Christ. Yes. Does the old covenant still stand against unbelievers in which they, by definition of what the law says, what sin is, they violate that law? They're not partakers <coughs> of that government, but of that covenant, but the law stands to condemn them as unbelievers, even though they're not part of that covenant. So what I would do, let me let me post that's a that's a that's a question with a lot to say to it but let me let me postpone it but let me just say this to satisfy a little bit we are under the covenant of works and because Adam violated the covenant of works in Genesis 2 uh, in Genesis 3 um, then we're all condemned in Adam that's the condition that we're in we're in we're under the under the condemnation for the breaking of that covenant because of our federal head we were all in his loins when he broke and violated that covenant. And if, if you say, well, dumb old Adam, no, he was, he was, there's never been a human being like him at his stature, at his level, other than Christ himself. So any of us put in that same position, we would have fallen. So he violated it. He's our federal head. We're all born in with a sin nature because of it. So we're all in, we all inherit the guilt of that. That's what the doctrine of original sin is. And we all inherit the guilt of uh, original sin. Westminster Catechism, in, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So all of, us, all of us are guilty of that. We're born in sin. We have a sin nature. We prove that we're sinners by sinning. And um, so that's, that's where our condemnation lies. And that's where everybody is. A condemned mass of humanity that God has chosen from that, his people. Okay, so a lot more to say about that, but that's a, hopefully that'll, that'll scratch an itch there. So, so here's what, uh, with, the, with the covenant of redemption, we have uh, work assigned to the one who will redeem. That's the son, that's Jesus Christ. And there, is, there are promises that the father has given to the son for the completion of the work, Okay. So here's the work that's assigned to Christ. This is Charles Hodge, and he says this. Uh, so here's what the work was assigned to him. He was to assume our nature, humbling himself to be born of a woman and to be found in fashion as a man. This was to be a real incarnation, not a mere theophany, such as occurred repeatedly under the old dispensation. He was to become flesh, to take part of flesh and body, to be bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh, flesh made in all things like unto his brethren, yet without sin, that he might be touched with a sense of our infirmities and be able to sympathize with those who are tempted, being himself also tempted. He was to be made under law, voluntarily undertaking to fulfill all righteousness by obeying the law of God perfectly in all the forms in which it had been made obligatory on man." He was to bear our sins, to be a curse for us, offering himself as a sacrifice or propitiation to God in expiation of the sins of men. Okay, propitiation to God, what's that? That's, Joel, what's a propitiation? A satisfaction, an appeasement, a way to appease an angry deity. So he, Christ, was to bear our sins, be a curse for us, offering himself as a sacrifice that would appease the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. In expiation of, a, of um, where is it there? Of the sins of men. So expiation, what's that? That's to drive the sins away, to send them away. Then, you know, as a biblical language, 
to separate them as far as the east is from the west, so that they're forgotten. So, satisfy the wrath of God in order to expiate our sins. This involved his whole life of humiliation, sorrow, and suffering, and his ignominious death upon the cross under the hiding of his father's countenance. What he was to do after this pertains to his exaltation and reward. Okay, so those are the obligations placed upon the son in this pretemporal, eternal covenant made between father and son. And you think in your mind in terms of time, they made this, that, was, that means there was a point in which this was not made. They came to a table and sat down, father and son, and kind of agreed, no. When I say eternal covenant, I mean eternity, just like when we speak of like the eternal generation of the son, that is the father is always generating the son and the son is always in filial relationship to the father. That's eternally uh, the, their, their state and their nature and it's eternally active. These are things, categories that blow our minds that are incomprehensible fundamentally to us. And yet that's just, we're just describing, trying to apprehend what God is. It's the same thing with this decree. It's not like they sat down at one point pre-time and yet there was a time that they sat down. No, but we have a hard time thinking outside of time, space, categories. So, eternal decree, those are the, the obligations placed upon the son and the son took them up voluntarily. Now, after I read this and after I go through the promises made to the Redeemer, I'm gonna read through some texts of scripture and you're gonna see, you're gonna start to see, oh, that's what that's talking about. And you're going to find it all through scripture. So here's, here's the promises the father made to Jesus, made to the son. Such in general terms was the work which the son of God undertook to perform. The promises of the father to the son conditioned, that's why I say it's not grace, it's law, it's works. So it's conditioned upon the accomplishment of that work were, number one, that he would prepare him a body fit up a tabernacle for him, formed as was the body of Adam by the immediate agency of God, uncontaminated without spot or blemish. That's why the virgin birth is vital. It's a vital doctrine. Number two, that he would give the spirit to him without measure, that his whole human nature should be replenished with grace and strength and so adorned with the beauty of holiness that he should be altogether lovely. Number three, that he would be ever at his right hand to support and comfort him in the darkest hours of his conflict with the powers of darkness, and that he would ultimately bruise Satan under his feet. Number four, that God would deliver him from the power of death and exalt him to his own right hand in heaven, and that all power in heaven and earth should be committed to him. Number five, that he as the theanthropos, theanthropos, big word, theos, God, anthropos, man, God, man. So that, that he as the, the anthropos, the God-man and head of the church should have the Holy Spirit to send to whom he willed to renew their hearts, to satisfy and comfort them and to qualify them for his service and kingdom. Number six, that all given to him by the Father should come to him, a multitude whom no man can number, I'm sorry, should come to him and be kept by him so that none of them should be lost. Number seven, that a multitude whom no man could number should thus be made partakers of his redemption and that ultimately the kingdom of the Messiah should embrace all the nations of the earth. Number eight, that through Christ in him and in him's ransom church, there should be made the highest manifestation of the divine perfections to all order 
orders of holy intelligences throughout eternity. The Son of God was thus to see the see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. If you hear that language, I'm going to read some some passages that you'll you'll start to click. But just know that the book of Hebrews is unpacking all of this in such beautiful detail. All right. Let's go in our Bibles now and look at a few texts, because uh, there are a lot of scriptures that allude to this covenant. Uh, we'll start with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Immediately as I say that, I think you're already, you're already it's dawning on you what that's about. All right, Philippians 2. 5 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a a thing to be uh, clung to, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. This is, again, all his obligations are listed here. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, now here are the promises of God. God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Would God highly exalt Christ bestow on him the name that's above every name, call all heaven and earth and everyone under the earth to bow the knee to him. If Christ had not fulfilled his obligations to his part of the covenant fully, I mean, if he just left one thing out, maybe just one mental lapse, one errant stray thought that said, you know, I think Satan's bargain, getting all the kingdoms of the earth without suffering, sounds pretty good. One little, one little thought like that would have disqualified him from this. And yet he fulfilled everything in every way. And so God has highly exalted him. Go to John 6. John chapter 6, and starting in verse 37. All right. So let me, let me actually, I, I want to read every single one of these passages, but I, I realize that uh, I'm talking too much. So let's, uh, let's get somebody else to read this with a good, strong preaching voice that we, you will make yourself known, not just to this, not just in this age, but in the age to come. So, you know. <laughs> but uh, someone, so, can someone read this? John 6, 37 through 44. Yeah, Wayne. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Uh, You want it all the way to 47? 44. 44, okay. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, stop grumbling among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, thank you. So we can see that the Father has promised a son this humanity, this this um, this you know to be redeemed humanity by the by the Son's uh, perfect sacrifice by His obedience. He's going to see those that He has come to save and receive them, and all those and only those, but all those losing none of them, they will come to the Father. They will come, and he said, Jesus said, I will raise them up on the last day. You can see this, this will of the Father that Jesus came to do, so there is this, there's something that has happened before time began that he's alluding to here. Let's go, just skip a few chapters ahead to John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. We see this coming out right at the very beginning of this high priestly prayer. John 17, one to five, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him, all, uh, given him authority over all flesh. And here it is, to give eternal life to, whom, to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they should know or that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. A couple of other texts that always uh, come to mind when I think about this concept of I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And you say, well, when did he give him that to do? He says there, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So there's obviously a there's a there's a there's a life that he had before the world began, before the world came into existence. Both 2 Timothy 1:9 and Titus 1:2, they refer to this time, they allude to this time. They call they, they refer to this covenant that was made between father and son occurring. It's pra chronon ionion. So it's before the age. Pra is a little preposition that means before, beforehand. Chronon is referring to chronos. It's chronological time. And then Ionion is really eternity. It's ages. It could be translated ages, but it's before the ages began in the ESV. And in this case, I kind of like the NIV translation. It says God gave and promised, gave, 2 Timothy 1, 9, and Titus 1, 2, promised before the beginning of time before the beginning of time. That really helps us to get, kind of get, the, get the, uh, the, uh, the point. So that's just a, honestly, very brief, all too brief introduction to the covenant of redemption, what it says. Uh, Hodge has kind of explained the responsibilities of the son and the promises of the father in, 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 uh, upon fulfilled conditions of that covenant. And then we see the scriptures that are saturated with allusions to it. And this is just a, just a handful, just a handful. As you do your own Bible reading, I think you're going to see this show up more and more uh, as well. Psalm 22, by the way, I just, man, such a, you know, that's what Jesus said on the cross right there at the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some, some slanderous blasphemous souls say, look, he's denying the father. That's not what he's doing. He's actually introducing his complete fulfillment of his covenant obligations and showing at the end of that Psalm that he will be rewarded and he will have the people for whom he died. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture that he 
he was basically preaching on the cross and driving them to Psalm 22 to see, to interpret what was happening. All right, covenant of works. Any, any quick questions? Quick questions on covenant of redemption? Yes, sir. Well, man would have to be created in order for all this to exist, right? What? He has to have, without man, there's no need for redemption, so to figure out how this is relate to man, the idea or the concept of creating man. Yeah, I think, I think that's, uh, you, once again, I think you're touching on the limitations we feel as time-bound, space-bound creatures. So it's very hard for us to understand the concept of not only eternity, but omniscience and decree. Did God, like, okay, so we're talking prior to the existence of time and space, prior to the existence of matter in motion, which is the way we can measure time, right? All, none of that existed. What was there before any God created anything? God. Did God at some point in eternity past say, I know, let me make this thing called humanity. No, all of his thoughts, and this goes way back to uh, several years back to our uh, discussion in, in uh, theology proper on omniscience. And what does that mean? He has all knowledge, perfect knowledge, complete knowledge, knowledge of potential things and knowledge of actual. It's all a single thought before him at all times. So all that is, has always been with him. Always in his mind, always a perfect, complete, actualized thought in his mind. I don't know how to understand that. So you're wrestling with the same things that we all are, but we're trying to apprehend it, we can't comprehend it. <laughs> but just, in just, Paul answers that in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus look, Christ. Look up when you read. Oh, sorry. Blessed be the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, so that's the, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So it's, he's actually saying right there. Yeah, so it's, a, it's affirmed throughout Scripture that we're chosen before time began, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before time began, before the ages but how do we understand that? How do we reckon with that and grapple with that? I, it's hard to do. I, it's, well, it's impossible to do. It's, it, we're bound by creaturely limitations, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. God made us bound by creaturely limitations, and we rejoice in that. So, all right? Satisfied, John? <laughs> not really. <laughs> all right. Thanks for the interaction. Covenant of works. Let's talk about that. God, here's a, just to describe it. God made the covenant of works with Adam. He was promising. And, and do we find covenant works uh, there in Genesis 1, 2, 3? No, we don't. But we do, do we see the elements of this? Yes, we do. So God made the covenant of works with Adam, promising Adam eternal life contingent upon perfect obedience and threatening death for failing to obey. Okay, scripture, primary scripture here is Genesis 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there it is. Um, two parties, stipulations, agree agreement, stipulations. It's voluntary, you know, God enters into it voluntarily, freely. Adam, 
he will enter into it or, you know, freely, voluntarily, but he will violate it. So, um, so we know that. So we see the stipulations and the elements of the covenant there. So Burkhoff says this, just to explain, he says, in the case under consideration, two parties are named, a condition is laid down, the promise of reward for obedience is clearly implied, and a penalty for transgression is threatened. Um, Hodge goes on to say this, God, having created man after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, entered into a covenant of life with him. Notice he calls it a covenant of life. Covenant of works, covenant of life. Again, two terms that refer to the same thing entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. And Hodge goes on to say, God made to Adam a promise suspended upon a condition and attached to disobedience a certain penalty. This, in what, uh, this is what in scriptural language is meant by a covenant. Okay, so that's Covenant of Works, and I want to move on um, and just ask about how our confession of faith summarizes these covenants, and I think this will help to seal it for you. Let's uh, talk about, first of all, the, the confession, and, and I'd say a summary and explanation of a covenant, starting with the London Baptist Confession, which is the confession our church holds to. In uh, chapter 7, which is called Of God's Covenant, Section one says this. I'm going to give you some statements, read some sections, and then I'm going to ask you a couple questions. So make sure you're not listening in passive mode, but you're thinking, okay? What's that? Okay. Um, here's, here's section one, chapter seven of God's covenant. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, Yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Luke 17, 10, Job 35, 7 and 8. That's the first section. And I want to, I want to draw your attention to the statement, reasonable creatures do owe obedience to God as their creator. We're not talking about reasonable as opposed to an unreasonable person. Uh, you're so unreasonable. No, we're talking about people with reason, creatures with reason. So what are we talking about? Angels and mankind. So reasonable creatures, those with reason, do owe obedience to God as their creator. Listen to this elaboration by Samuel Renahan. By virtue, quote, by virtue of being a creature, man owes complete obedience to God. By virtue of being creator, God is owed man's complete obedience. In this natural creator-creature relationship, God does not owe a reward to man for his obedience. The only due response from God to man is the approval of justice. You've done what was asked of you. But man's obedience does not merit or earn anything as a reward. Jesus taught his disciples that masters do not owe servants a reward for doing uh, that which they are already obligated to do. And so the servants are to say, this is Luke 17, 10, we've preached through this. We're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. The servant cannot hold out his hand for a reward as though he has placed the master in his debt, end quote. Here's the question for you, American evangelical. How do you think Americans hear this concept of obligatory obedience? 
of obeying as a duty. What's the typical American response to that? Death to King George, right? What's, what do you think? Yeah. It's a very chafing concept, I would think. We just, we don't agree with that. It's freedom. It's freedom. <laughs> That's the battle cry of America. <laughs> freedom is the battle cry. I like the word chafing. That, that's, that's a great word because that's how, do, do you guys feel that? It just instinctually, like in your heart, you feel this chafing against this command that do your duty and obey everything God said. Hello? We're like, not fair. Yeah, Brett, we'll come back. Yeah, before I was a Christian, not like that exact passage about the, the, in Luke about, you know, the master, Jesus saying, I mean, your master is not going to say to you, Oh, you had a hard day here. Let me serve you. You know, and that used to. It just seems so like, like that's not my God, or I don't know what. You know, just like my Sunday school theology just had, just did not include that, and and, and it, it bothered me. And then you know, eventually I realized you have a problem with the actual God of the Bible. This is the God that's actually being revealed here. Your your problem is with this God. So then, then that was instrumental in my salvation because then I realized who I was rebelling against, you know. Man, what a good word. Thank you. That's really helpful. Yeah, Rufus, and then come to one. Seems like we even uh, soften and mistranslate the word doulos and make it servant instead of slave. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah, the word doulos. Really important to have that slave concept in mind. And, and, and especially today, in, in today's, you know, woke environment, um, to go back and talk about the, you know, there, there were slaves in the Bible that, that didn't want to leave their masters. And they came to their masters and said, take, take my ear to the doorpost and drive an all through it and let me be your slave in perpetuity because I love you and I want to live my life underneath your authority and your care, your protection, all the, all the benefits that you've granted me. You are a good master. That's true. That's how, that's how we need to understand our relationship with God is how kind he is. Wayne. Yeah, my, my mind was going the same way Rufus is did. Like, our reaction uh, is, is to actually manipulate the structure of words. Like, we will try and manipulate the concept to get out of this idea. Another, another word that is absolutely biblical and true is submission. Mm-hmm. That we as American Christians just absolutely struggle with, whether we're talking about it in the context of marriage, or we're talking about it in the vertical relationship with God. This idea of fully and completely submitting to God everything that we do with everything that we have and every resource that we have, that is tough. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, from, from the very basics of evangelism to discipleship, right, you'll see it in every stage of the life of the believer of the American Christian. Yeah. We see it in our homes, we see it in our workplace, we see it in our church. All these tensions to do with authority and submission, obligatory duties and, you know, that which is voluntarily offered. Um, big, big time rub with American Christianity. It's interesting, you know, we talk to, you know, missionaries who may go to another culture and go take the gospel to Africa, Asia, you know, different places in the world. And it's very interesting how they can assess a culture that's foreign to them. And they can see its positive points and its negative points and critique it and say, well, here's biblically where you need to come to. 
You know what we have real trouble with is assessing our own culture. We're blind to it. We're like fish swimming in water that don't feel wet. And every now and again, we got to flop up on the shore and take a look at, you know, what is, what is this culture like? And this is what it's like. We are so, and it's not, it's not a true freedom. It's a libertarian, you know, no rules, nothing restraining me whatsoever. That's not freedom. That's enslavement. But we've turned it into freedom. Wes, Ryan, and then we're going to come back to Bill. You have something to say? We'll come back to you, and then we'll keep on moving. Yeah, yeah I'll try to do it quick, but I think that um, the other part that I notice in this is that there is a, um, a lack of contentment and expectation for uh, focusing a little bit on the, on the words of award and reward and how that's viewed by, by the world and then how that breeds contempt in one another for, I, I see this in my work all the time, where you know you to establish and, and to be seen by others you start to like see covetousness and, and, and frustration and bitterness and anger and competitiveness and all those things that come with the expectation that you deserve something more than what you were going to get for you know, what you're supposed to do. I, let's, I, I want to hold that and just put a pin right there because I want to come back to that in a second with some questions to make you really uncomfortable. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you specifically. I'm going to have you stand up here. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think as Americans, we, we look at this concept of um, it's, our, it's our pride that gets in the way. Like we, in this country, it's, you, know, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You control your own destiny. And when God gives us this command, we often want to put ourselves on equal footing you know, to say that, you know, who are you to direct, to set all the, to the standards? I need to bring something to the table. Yeah. Even if you have something, something off, so do I. Yeah. And in this context, we have nothing. Yeah. And that we just can't handle it. Yeah. And that goes back to pointing out the need for the covenant of grace. We need grace from God. We, we can't bring our works. And, and this whole, this whole idea of, I mean, just be very careful. You guys don't baptize enlightenment, principles with Christianity. Don't, don't try to make that, you know, comport with Christianity. It, it's, it's a different system. It's a different system of thinking. This enlightenment or French Revolution sense of libertad, um, it's, it's actually enslavement. It's not. It's not Christianity. It's not Christian freedom. There was one, oh, Bill. It occurs to me, thinking about what you were saying earlier, Travis, that the, the, the part of this comes totally anti-authoritarian, that we view all authority as bad authority, not righteous authority, as good authority. And because of that, when we keep commandments, when we when when we act as we're supposed to in covenant, the result of that is blessing. Yeah. Obedience and, and a blessing are never not connected in the righteousness of God. Luke uh, 11, uh, 28, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and yeah. keep it. Yeah. Yeah. And keep it. There's, there. It's like, it's, it's like we're saying, huh? I don't want the blessing of obedience. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want the blessing of righteousness. I don't, I don't want, the, I don't want this stuff because I fundamentally see authority as questionable or not good. Mm -hmm. When in fact, there is <coughs> righteous authority we're doing better. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, I think, I think what is a challenge for us in this fallen world is that God has given these good institutions that that provide authority, structures of authority for for our formation and shaping our blessing. And yet, 
All of our institutions are populated with sinners. And so when there's a bad husband who uses authority in a bad way toward his wife, many people are, don't see the difference between this particular marriage instantiation of an institution and the institution itself. They want to cast away the whole system. But in cast away you know, the whole system, they've, they've completely divorced themselves from any opportunity of blessing and joy and encouragement from, uh, that comes from that institution, that shaping and formation that comes from the institution. Safety. Yeah, protection, care, provision, protection. Yeah, so great thoughts. Thank you, guys. Um, sometimes I hear parents thanking their children for obedience. You ever hear this? You ever do this? No, Johnny, give that back to your sister. Oh, good job, Johnny. Thank you. Or, Susie, put the toys away as I've told you before. Oh, there you go. Good, Susie. Thank you for putting the toys away. Have you ever heard that? Why is that inconsistent to thank our children for obeying in us? For obeying us. And what does that enforce or reinforce in our children when we thank them for obeying? Boy, it got silent. Kind of like, like what uh, Brett said, you know, with the servant, ex you know, not expecting the master to, oh, go ahead, take, you know, kick your feet up. I'll get food ready for you at our day. I'll, it's expected of us, it's required of us. So yeah, we shouldn't be thanked for what we're already supposed to do. Okay, so we shouldn't be thanked. Children shouldn't be thanked for what they're already supposed to do. How many parents have you heard say, you know, when something's pointed out in their two-year-old, and they say, well, come on, you can't expect a two-year-old to obey. Really? They're only two, they're only three, they're only 12. <laughs> Come on. John, you were going to say? You were going to say something? Well, the, the thing is that the kids learn to do for what they can get out of it. So okay. They're looking for a reward. They're looking for. Really? So yeah. They do it because of what they can get and it not realizing. I think that because the whole principle, you know, we get back to you do it for the sake of others. You don't do it, and, and that's a problem. Everything's focusing on the child. No, he isn't the center of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Rich, you're not the center of his world. <laughs> hey, Cody, you're not the center of your dad's world. Got it? <laughs> yeah, but, but, I mean, but how do we not go to the extreme? Because if I say, hey, Calvin, pass me the salt, I'm going to say thank you when he passes me the salt. So, I mean, where do I draw the line? You know? Um, I, I understand what you're asking, and let me deal with the, uh, the instance of maybe exception or being kind of lenient with that kind of thing. I agree with you. You don't want to be hard, but at the same time, if Calvin is throwing himself down on the floor because he doesn't want to eat his cold peas, do you say, Calvin, I told you, get up off the floor, sit down, eat your peas, and he sits down and eats his peas, with a grumbling face and peace, you say, thank you, Calvin, for your obedience. Right? So, but you see a lot of parents parenting exactly that same way. Thanking their children for what's commanded of them, for the duty that's, that's owed by them. If you thank him for eating the cold peas after he's thrown a tantrum and he's got anger in his heart, what are you doing? You're reinforcing his rebellion. 
you're reinforcing that he doesn't really owe you that obedience. You're reinforcing a sense of willfulness in your child. And as the proverb says, um, um, oh, I just lost. Oh, just that phrase that they'll become wise in their own eyes. That's what they become. They become wise in their own eyes and thinking, you know, I know my parent, my parent will stoop to down to thank me for what really is owed. Is there another hand I saw over here? Yeah. Sorry. Um, I, don't, I don't thank people in the parking lot for not running into my car or not robbing me. They're just not supposed to do that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's an internal inconsistency. You walk by a pack of thugs and they, they, they stay quiet and you're like, hey, thanks guys for not beating me up and taking my money. I feel actually compelled to say that. I, Thank you. <laughs> it's an internal inconsistency with, with yeah. our children where uh, we're, we're switching over to that love of self and uh, we, we're on this like slippery slope yeah. of glorifying the self and, and thanking them for, do for doing what they were supposed to do. And we ha I have to do it at work. I have to thank people for doing their job. And it's because okay. if they don't do it, I'll have to do it. Okay. Well, okay, so let me come back to that in just a second. Bradley, I see your hand. Let me come back to it in just a second after I say this. So what does Ephesians 6, 1 to 3 say? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Why, do we, why should our children obey us? Is it because of all the blessing they're going to get out of it? No, because it's right. It's righteous. Now, honor your father and mother, Paul says, and this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the land. Since obedience is commanded by God of our children, it is obligatory. It's the child's duty to, uh, to God, duty to God to obey his parents. Children are not to be thanked for obeying. I'm talking principally. I mean, it's not, you know, pass the salt. Hey, thank you, Calvin, for passing this. I'm not trying to, you know, make you curmudgeonly and a jerk in your home. I'm just trying to say, principally speaking, we don't thank children for obedience. You expect it. You should expect obedience from your children. Notice how Paul, though, points to the addition of God's promise that's attached to the commandment that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the land. Notice, and by the way, obedience, that's what you do. Honor, that's what you think. Honor is a matter of the heart. So Calvin can force peas down his throat and be grumbling and gritting his teeth and angry at dad. That's not honoring. Calvin needs to obey by doing and also longing to do, being happy to do, joyful to do. Father, thank you for these cold peas filled with nutrition. I see the error of my ways and I see your wisdom, Father, in putting this on my plate. Mother, thank you. Cold is exactly the way I like them. You know. <laughs> but the promise here is an inducement, is an inducement to perform the duty. But to be clear, it's not a reward for obedience. That is not God's way of saying thank you for a duty owed. The promise is part and parcel of the Mosaic Covenant, which is how God mediates the covenant relationship with Israel. Same promise, particularly that you may live long in the land, that wasn't true for Canaanite families, right? This is something specific to the Mosaic Covenant. He's trying to point out this inducement for obedience of honoring that does transfer to all of us in some sense. Now, take that same concept and extend it to other duties. Do you thank 
Scott, do you thank employees? You do, evidently, by your confession. Uh, uh, for doing the work that you hired them to do? Or if you're an employee, do you expect to be thanked? Or do you expect to be paid? Or both? Many employees, both, right? Isn't it the fact that there is this contractual relationship between the employer and the employee that if you do what's, what's required of you, you perform your duties, you get a paycheck, and isn't that good enough? Not in today's world, right? We expect not only to be paid, but to be flattered, to be told how wonderful we are. And boy, you've, you've, you're headed for upper level management. You're so brilliant. What about the church? Should church members be thanked for serving Christ in his church? Jesus said, John, uh, Luke 17, 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Guys, this starts in the home. As you reinforce this for your children, that the, you expect them to obey, there, there are consequences for their disobedience. Um, it, for voluntary things where little Calvin runs up to dad and, dad, look at this card I made you. Thank, here, I love you. And, oh, thank you. That's very appropriate. But for expected, how he should speak to his mother, that ought to be expected. His honor and his obedience to his mother. Yeah, Wayne. Uh, well, actually, let me come to Bradley first. This is a very interesting conversation. I mean, a big complaint in society is we've gone downhill, the lack of civility, courtesy, and a lot of that is part of even little, the little things, you know, the thank you. And uh, I just, it brings to mind Raymond episode where, where Marie is just going off the handle telling Frank, you, you know, essentially you're an ingrate, you're not thankful, you don't, you know, I do all this cooking and all that, and he just stands there and says, well, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, why should I thank you? Yeah, and in a comedy program, they're trying to heap scorn upon this concept. They're trying to get us to laugh at it and see how foolish and ridiculous it is. And that's what they're reinforcing in us because that's what we really believe deep down inside. Like Brett testified to earlier, that's what we tend to believe about God. How dare you ask me, you know, tell me to obey anything. I'm free. Listen, and just wait, I'll come to you in just a second. If you are between the ages of 12 and 18 in this room, Jack, don't you step out of the room. <laughs> If you're between the ages of 12 and 18, it is your duty to obey your parents and to honor your parents. You do not, you, you are, do not tread roughly over this command. This is your obligation to render obedience as unto God to your mother and your father and to obey them, or to honor them, I mean. So it's honor in the heart and it's obedience externally in what you say, what you do, but how you think is vital. And listen, there is a promise attached to this. You may live long in the land, and you may enjoy God's blessing. You want God's blessing in your life? Obey and honor. Obey and honor. Okay? I'm looking at you. <laughs> All right? Um, Wayne. Yeah. I wanted to make the point, um, there's a difference between the baseline expectation under a covenant. So, for example, you, you were talking about, like, should we thank people in the church, right? Service in the church is 
and, and in fact far more than any of us are serving in the church is what is owed to God period right our entire life everything that we've got um, so so in that lens I would say no but when you look at first uh, <coughs> Timothy and Titus qualifications of an elder um, they are expected to show a certain level of graciousness in dealing with others and when you look at Paul's interactions with uh, the churches in his missionary journeys and then in his epistles, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-3, opens up his discussion um, to the church in Thessalonica with uh, a remembrance and a, a constant thanking and remembrance in prayer. Thanking who? This is a pattern that is repeated. Thanking who? Um, th thanking God for them as a continual remembrance um, and specifically mentions their works. Mm -hmm. um, but does he say thank you Thessalonians for your works unto God? No. Mm -mm. No. And so it's just reinforcing your point to say that our, our obedience in the church, our obedience in the workplace, our obedience in the home, our obedience to what's commanded and required is not, it's just doing what we're supposed to do, you know? Um, we thank God for it. But listen, I, I am, I'm not going to stop thanking people who serve. I am not. Um, because I am so grateful for members of the church who, I mean, they're working 50, 60, whatever hours. They're tired. They've got things to do. But as a, as a member of the body, their service to the body of the church is, is what's required. If they've got that gift and they don't do that gift, well, then the body is hurting because they're not doing it. And so you know, it's principally that they should do what they're gifted to do in the body. But man, I'm so appreciative of it. And so you're going to find me violating this principle all the time by thanking people for doing what they're doing, because I really do appreciate it. But I'm ultimately going to give thanks to God, like Paul does in all through his letters, all through his epistles, giving thanks to God for the people being faithful. Okay? But thanking them for faithfulness, that's principally really not what we're supposed to do. So, um, Isaiah, right? I think there's a difference between owing things and being kind and wanting. That's a good, that's a good distinction. That's a good distinction to make. Good distinction between owing and b between just offering, yeah. And just owing that thanks to God for you know, allowing that to happen, for willing that to happen, you know. Good distinction. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's good. Right. Yeah, and, and, and along with that. Brett, I'm not going to have him skip you right. Later. You can just force it out, just, you know, like the pass the salt thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like not everything you say to your kid is a command. And when you're saying pass the salt, I mean, uh, peers say pass the salt to each other, and they're genuinely grateful when the person passes the salt. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if the kid chose not to pass the salt, then it would become an obedience issue. You know, then, then it is a command. Or, you know, it was already a command, but it's also just a, you know, hey, would, would you please pass the salt? Thank you for passing the salt. So it's like, I mean, you can just kind of look at each individual instance and think to yourself, but on yeah. the other But what, what comes up is if, if uh, Devin says, Calvin, pass the salt, and Calvin says, not going to do it. And then Devin says, no, I, now it's become an issue of obedience. And, and Calvin looks at him and says, Oh, I didn't realize that your, your, your request was obligatory upon my obedience, and this is part of my duty, <laughs> rendered unto God to obey you. Therefore, I will pass the salt cheerfully 
to you, Father. Um, and listen, I'm telling you, these conversations have come up with my own kids. Now, Dad, are you commanding me, or is this a suggestion? I'm like, everything that comes out, everything that comes out of my mouth, son, you shall do. Yeah, I mean, it does come down. He's like, well, you know what? When it comes down to it, anything I say, you have to. Calvin, let's talk about covenant. <laughs> All right. So let, let's get in the next section of uh, the London Baptist Convention. That's, that's just the first section. And what I want to illustrate in some of that conversation, yes, I, it's instructive. Uh, and, and we need to think about this and kind of look, step out of our culture to look at our culture and look at ourselves as, as, as uh, influenced and weaned by this culture. But I want you to see how clarifying the concept of covenant is for something as practical as raising your family, uh, as an employer-employee relationship in the workplace, as a church member. This is vital for setting a foundation for how we think about things, okay? That's, that's the bigger thing I wanna illustrate in this little discussion in addition to kind of, you know, chafing you, right? Uh, so Adam, thank you for that word. Continuing in the next section of the confession in section two, moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, promising to give all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe." There's a host of scriptures to that. Again, that phrase, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. Notice that the London Baptist Confession doesn't use the language covenant of works. The Westminster Confession of Faith does in chapter 7, section 2, but the LBC simply refers implicitly but clearly to a covenant of works and then explicitly to the covenant of grace. Uh, and so the two are, the, the one is implied by the other, definitely. Um, the promise of life and the covenant of works, which at, in Adam we failed to keep, was conditioned upon Adam's obedience, whereas the promise of life and the covenant of grace is conditioned upon what? Promise of life in the covenant of grace is conditioned upon what in us? Salvation is by grace through? That's the right answer. So it's conditioned, the promise of life and the covenant of grace is conditioned upon our faith, upon our believing, not upon our works, right? But upon our faith, upon our believing. But think about these questions, we'll come back to them. How is it that faith, how is it that believing is not a work? Okay, that's, that's the Roman Catholic's contention. They say that it is a work and therefore salvation is by faith which they, to them is a work, it's a human work. In the accomplishment of our salvation, are no works involved at all? How is that just? I mean, since you know, humanity's violation of the covenant of works, all of us being in Adam, how is that rectified in the covenant of grace? How is it brought together? So keep those questions in mind as we read this final section. Section 3, London Baptist Confession. This covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. 
talking about the covenant of redemption there. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain, eternal, did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. And a bunch of verses there. So the covenant of grace revealed in the gospel First, in its most primitive form in the Proto-Evangelium, the Proto-Euangelion, Genesis 3.15, the, the curse on the serpent, right? And then afterwards it says in the, in the confession, afterwards by farther steps, farther steps, think progression, progression, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And we've discussed that before in STM in Bibliology, the concept called the progress of revelation. That's what it's referring to with farther steps, further revelation. So this tells us the covenant of grace, which we'll come to and explain uh, further down the road, but it's founded in the pre-temporal covenant of redemption. What what, uh, the confession calls the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son, about the redemption of the elect. So, what makes this relationship between the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption important to us? What practical benefit does it provide to us as we think about our salvation? What practical benefit does it provide to think that the covenant of grace, this, you believe, and it will be reckoned to you as under righteousness, um, that you will get eternal life if you believe, what, is, what, what benefit is it to see that that is grounded in this eternal, eternal um, covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son? Why is it important that the grounding of our salvation is in that eternal covenant? Yeah. Simply put, bingo. Yes, very good. Uh, it's, uh, there's capability on our part in a fallen state to perform faith. <coughs> Capability on our part in a fallen state yeah. to perform faith. Actually, no, there isn't capability in our fallen state to perform faith. And this, but you're, but you're hitting exactly why I asked that question. How is it that our faith or our believing is not a work? <laughs> if, if we were capable in our fallen state of rendering unto God faith, then it would be a work. So we'll come back to that, though. I'm glad you said that. I was like taking people to Ephesians 1 and 2 and telling them, like, if you had a dry erase board, put God on one side and man on one, one other side and start counting how many times God is doing something and how many times man is doing something in those two chapters, and you won't find anything that man is doing. And even believing is a gift. That's a good exercise. Yeah, sounds really good. Yeah, thank you. Good. <coughs> God? Is it faith a gift of God? Yes. It, it is a gift of God. So, now it's is it something we exercise? <laughs> yeah, it yeah. is. But it was, it's like he said, to them gave he the power yes. to, to become children of God. God. <laughs> so we do it because of his power. Yeah. Not because of what yeah. we we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. How is it a gift of God and how is it something that's required of us? It was a gift of God. Wait a minute. <laughs> I was asking our whole group, I can't think of one example in the Bible of somebody believing or obeying God when God didn't approach them first or the herald of God didn't approach them first 
and then it's kind of forehead. <coughs> the Bible, the 66 books, are way before us in time and space. And we wouldn't even be talking about this if it weren't for these books. Yeah. So it's just simple arithmetic at that point. What came first was this. We couldn't believe if it weren't for this. Yeah. God approached us first. And we wouldn't have a covenant of grace if it weren't for a covenant of redemption, you know, between the Father and the Son. And so I'm just, I'm just trying to point us backward to see what are the benefits? Why, why does it matter to us that there is this covenant of redemption between Father and Son, pre-time, pre-creation, that what, what benefit is that to us? So let me give you some thoughts. In the covenant of redemption, God grounds our salvation in the demands of justice. Okay? He makes our salvation a matter of righteousness. It's a matter of righteousness for him that we are saved. We don't tend to think of our salvation in terms of justice. We tend to think of it in terms of justice being the kind of the enemy of us. Justice is actually our friend. We, t- we tend to think justice has to be satisfied. This, this, anybody see like Les Miserables? You know, Jean Valjean and, and uh, Javert. Javert represents law, justice, demands of justice, and Jean Valjean, mercy, and grace, and compassion. And so that's a Catholic, totally Catholic movie, Catholic understanding, um, a totally Catholic book, uh, to a Catholic understanding of, of justice as intention with mercy and compassion. They are not at odds. And our salvation is dependent on this fundamental justice and righteousness of God being satisfied in our salvation. It's a good thing. Justice is a good thing. The son fulfilled the conditions of the covenant of redemption. And so since he fulfilled them, the father fulfills what he promised to the son. It's justice that the father fulfills his promises to the son, not grace. We can talk about our salvation then as an outworking of God's grace toward us in Christ, and so it is, but our salvation is also an outworking of God's justice. It's a matter of perfect righteousness. So, in other words, we can say that God must save those whom Christ redeemed. Okay? So why is this important? What practical benefit does this provide for us here, right now? Those covenants not only reveal the inter-Trinitarian work of God for us, elaborating on how great a love that he's given us. And they not only explain the basis and the grounding of our salvation, but they are the very ground of our assurance. They're the ground of our abiding confidence. It's the platform. It's the ground on which we stand. Okay. goes all the way back. But wait, there's more. Wilhelm Sobrackel, um, this is a, a, a book that I've become becoming acquainted with and really rejoicing in. He gives some practical observations about the covenant of redemption. He says, here's a few. It gives uh, five, I think. Yep, five. First, the salvation of the elect is unmovably sure. They are therefore in an unchangeable state, indeed, as confirmed in this as the elect angels. You see, the elect angels is immutable in their state. (laughs) We're no less immutable in our state in the covenant because of the covenant of redemption, we're no less immutable than they are. It's fixed that we will be saved. For both parties, God, the Lord, and, and Christ are fully and mutually satisfied concerning the salvation of the elect and the way in which they will become partakers of it. The condition for this having been fulfilled by the surety. 
They need not keep themselves. But according to this decree, they are in Christ's keeping and thus are kept by a sure, almighty, and faithful hand. Therefore, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall disannul the covenant which has been established between them both? O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Secondly, the elect neither need to accomplish nor merit salvation, nor anything to the acquisition thereof. For by this covenant, all the weighty con conditions were laid upon Christ. He would bear their punishment. He would fulfill the law on their behalf. He would keep them, and he would lead them to salvation. He would perform all that pertain to the covenant and has also accomplished it. On the other hand, all the merits of Christ extend to God's children. All and all graces are theirs. The adoption unto children, justification, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification, all these, at the appropriate time, manner, and measure, are administered to them in accordance with the contents of this covenant. Therefore, in recognition of this, how they ought to cry, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name, give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Thirdly, the covenant of grace and our covenant transaction with God in Christ has its origin and basis in this covenant of redemption between God and Christ. From this covenant issue forth the beginning, continuance, and end of man's salvation. Before anyone existed and before the gospel was proclaimed to them, it had already been decreed and established in this covenant when each of the elect would be born, when and by what means they would be brought into the covenant, the measure of grace, comfort, and holiness, and the quantity and nature of all the tribulations and crosses they would have to endure in this life. Think about that. How settling that is for your mind. That any trial, temptation, difficulty, suffering you go through, it's already been measured out, marked out by God. All this has been determined, and all the aforementioned matters issue forth from this covenant. Therefore the elect on the one hand need but be still and to let the Lord work. They need to but open their mouths to receive, like think about a little baby bird in a nest, taking food from its mother. For whatever is comprehended by the articles of this covenant will most certainly be given to them. On the other hand, they must focus upon this covenant, be active in entering into the covenant of grace and living therein. They must take it to the very foundation of their life. This will motivate the godly to proceed with understanding and steadfastness, never resting in the steadfastness of their faith or godliness, nor as one is so often inclined to do, being tossed to and fro, and both appear to diminish. In consequence, so he's speaking there of our duty, our obligation to seek assurance, to be steadfast in assurance, and how do we do that? But by pressing in, pursuing, leaning into what God has given us. In consequence of this, they will acknowledge that the manifestation of every grace and influence of the Holy Spirit proceeds from this covenant they will be enabled to exclaim freely, joyously, and lovingly, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Fourthly, this covenant reveals a love which is unparalleled, exceeding all comprehension. How blessed and what a wonder it is to have been considered and known in this covenant, to have been given by the Father to the Son, and by the Son to have been written in his book, and to have been the object of the eternal, mutual delight of the Father and the Son to save you. The parties of this covenant were not moved to include any of the elect on the basis of foreseen faith or good works. They were not moved by necessity or compulsion, but by eternal love and volition. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. 
Love moved the Father and love moved the Lord Jesus. It is a covenant of love between those whose love proceeds from within themselves without there being any lovableness on the object, in the object of this love. Oh, how blessed is he who is incorporated into this covenant and being enveloped and eradicated by this eternal love. Or I'm sorry, not eradicated, irradiated, irradiated, <laughs> bursting forth. It's got a dash there for my, you know, in my defense, it's hard to read. Um, enveloped and irradiated by this eternal love is stirred up to love in return, exclaiming, we love him because he first loved us. Number five, lastly, by virtue of this covenant, the Lord Jesus is the executor of the salvation of the elect. The Father has given them into his hand and entrusts them to him. The Son in love has accepted them and has committed himself not to lose one of them, but to raise them up again at the last day. The Lord Jesus is omnipotent, faithful, loving, immutable, and possesses everything which is necessary for their salvation. How safely one may therefore surrender everything to him and rest therein, confessing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me into glory. And then blessed are they that put their trust in him. This is the basis of our confidence as we enter into daily battle, as we put on the full armor of God. It says in Ephesians 6:14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Think about that last line, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Anybody, an athlete, military, you understand how important footing is, how important your stance is, whether it's fighting or, or running or, or tackling or whatever it is you do in sport or in military or combat or whatever. You must have a good, good shoes for your feet, good footing. And the footing that we have as Christians is given to us by this gospel of peace that's founded in, in a Trinitarian agreement. In all circ circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arts of, darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. What's the helmet for? Keep you from getting your grape crushed when you run into, you know, get a, hit by a broadsword and you don't get squashed. Put the helmet on though, you feel invincible running into battle. Helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times of the spirit with all prayer and supplication. That's our daily duty. And if we do that every day, grounded in this concept that God's done it all, we have great, great confidence. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, it has, whereas the LBC has six, or uh, three sections, L, uh, Westminster has six. Um, and I commend that to you to read. You'll see the same language, but it's been boiled down in the, in the London Baptist. But how is it that, let me just answer these questions very quickly. How is it that our faith, our believing is not a work, okay? It's not a work because it is the gift of God and it's a gift of God by the Spirit's regeneration. So the Spirit regenerates us, causes us to be born again. And when we're born again, we get a new nature. And that new nature, immediately, its first breath is to put faith in Christ. Its first desire. Our old nature, everything about our old nature desires what's evil, what's opposed to God, what's serving self. 
if that's, if that's what we constantly long for is what pleases self and what we want to do and everything, that we have an old nature. The new nature, it wants what God wants all the time. It rejoices with God's commands in its, in its core. There are sometimes we can be deceived by the sin nature, but that new nature ultimately it wants nothing to do with sin. It wants everything to do with God. It wants everything about God at the center of the heart. That's the new nature. And that's given to us by regeneration. And the first thing we do with that new nature is believe. So that's where it is. It is a work that we do, you could say, but it's a work that God gave us. It's a work that God generated in us by regeneration. That's why it's not a human work that finds its origin in self. It finds its origin in God, regeneration, saving faith. In the accomplishment of our salvation, are no works involved at all? No, Christ's works are involved. Christ's works are essential, and that is the ground of our salvation, is in the justice that Christ would be rewarded for his works. And we, then, are the reward of those works. We're given to the Son by the Father as this redeemed humanity that he went out to pursue and win. Okay? That's how we wrap it up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for this, uh, these concepts of, uh, of covenant and justice and faith and grace and all, these, all these, uh, uh, these things we've been discussing that give us categories to understand the great salvation that we have been brought into. And we know that this has been your eternal plan. I can't even understand that term, eternal plan. Uh, eternal decree, and yet we are partakers of it, we're beneficiary, beneficiaries of it, and we ask that you would make us faithful members of this covenant that we've been brought into. We thank you for these men, and I pray that you would uh, use the things that we've talked about to give strong assurance to them of their salvation, and that they would uh, it'd be ground under their feet, solid rock underneath their feet as they launch out into life and ministry, loving their families, doing their work as unto you and serving uh, the church of Jesus Christ with, with fervor, joy, passion, and energy. And we just ask for your blessing upon us and our families, our workplace, our, our homes, our, our church, and uh, that you would sanctify us completely and help us to be diligent about finding a, the assurance of our salvation in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.